Matthew 12, verses 43 through 50, and let's go ahead and we'll pray as we come to God's Word and open it together this morning. Lord God, even as we just sung, we confess that we trust in You. We trust in You, God Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. We trust in You, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father. We trust in You, O Holy Spirit. We pray that by Your kindness and according to Your mercy and Your grace that You would work this morning in our midst, that You would take this Word which You have given to Your people, that You would work by Your Spirit, and that You would show us Your ways and Your truth, for we trust in You. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, amen. Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 50, this is the holy and errant Word of God. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And When it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, we are jumping back into Matthew here after a couple of weeks of break uh, from the book. And it may seem a little odd to you to, to put these two passages together, but that is what Matthew does, and I think there is good reason for that. And I believe the reason is this. In the first, we see the great error of what is only a partial, what I would call a partial reformation, a mere moralism. And in the second, Jesus holds out to us the great blessing of what I would call the full reformation, discipleship in Him. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at those two things together, those two points together. Let's look at the great error of partial reformation, mere moralism, and then the great blessing that's granted to disciples of Christ and are those who experience a, a full reformation of their entire persons. Well, Jesus begins this passage by saying that an unclean spirit leaves a person and that as it leaves the person, it goes out into the world and it wanders through waterless places seeking rest. He says, but it can't find any rest. It's, 
It's interesting to me, at least, that this seems to imply that evil spirits, that as they go out of a person, they can't find anywhere to rest, and they're not at ease until they're back in a person and indwelling a person. But I think what is even more interesting is what Jesus says about that house, that that person that was left. He says the inward person, that house, is swept and it's put in order before that demon returns. So you have a person that's doing a reclamation project. They are attempting to reform themselves. They're cleaning their house from within. They are setting things in order. And as that spirit goes out, then it comes back and it finds when it comes back into the person that the place has been cleaned. And so it goes out and it finds seven more evil spirits and that are more wicked than it is itself. And all of those spirits then come in and indwell that person. What's happened to that person? Well, that individual has gone through a transformation, a moral transformation. They, they've sought to clean themselves inwardly, but it's only a partial transformation. And to remember that Jesus is saying this in the context of the Pharisees. The Pharisees have just accused him. If you remember, if you look back in chapter 12, he cast out a demon there in verses 22 and following. And so the Pharisees begin to accuse him of being in league with Satan, that he is actually a tool of the devil himself. So Jesus goes on to speak about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And so he has just cast out a demon, and that is in the background. You have these Pharisees that are accusing him of being in league with Satan, and these Pharisees were incredibly moral individuals. They sought to live their lives by a high moral standard. They were committed to living a law-filled, a law-determined, a law-guided life. But it was fruitless. Because their morality was simply moralism. And Jesus is speaking to this generation and speaking to these Pharisees. And he's saying this this mere moralism, your rejecting of me. And attempting to live your lives morally by the law of God. Put you in even greater jeopardy. Here's the reality. The moralist is as lost as the atheist. There are many who aren't quite sure about Jesus and His resurrection and submitting their lives to Him as Lord and Savior, but they like His teaching. They they like the morality that, that He speaks of. How He says one is to construct their lives and how one is to live their lives. I've sat with countless people over the decades where I've sat with them and I've asked the question, do you think that you will be in heaven when you die? How many times I've heard the answer of, well, yeah, I think I've been a pretty good person, not the best person, but a pretty good person. I think God will honor that. Or it comes in another form, someone says, well, yeah, I've, I've attempted to live my life by the Ten Commandments. I've done pretty well. I want to say, where do you want to start? You want to start with the first commandment or the tenth? And let's go through them. Because it doesn't count. 
doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. In fact, Jesus is saying the moralist is in even greater danger. It doesn't seem that way. We look at those living around us that are living moral lives but are without Christ, and we think they're closer to Christ. They're closer to having God. But, but here's the reality. They are, in fact, much further away from God. A student who knows that they're a poor writer will go to their teacher and look for some input about how to write better. But a student that's a poor writer but thinks they're a good writer won't go to their teacher and ask for that input. And we will convince ourselves that we're good. We live in an imaginary world of our own making in which we think God looks upon us with pleasure simply because we try hard. Or maybe we think that He looks upon us with pleasure because we're better than that person over there. This was the mindset of the Pharisees. Thank God that I'm not like the tax collector. It is hard for the self-righteous to humble themselves and come to Christ. And that's why in the Gospels it's often the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the thieves and the murderers who we see come to know Christ, whereas the religious elites are the furthest from Him. I came not for the righteous, Jesus says, but I came for sinners. These Pharisees, they're living morally informed lives. They've cleaned the house. They've, They've put it in order. But they've not filled it with Christ. Here's the reality. When Christ does not fill that void in one's life, something else will. And for the Pharisees, it was self-righteousness. For us, it can be a myriad of things, including self-righteousness. How often have you seen someone seek to morally transform their lives, and, but they don't fill it with Christ, and they... They look good for a week, two weeks, a few weeks, maybe a month, a few months, maybe even a few years. But then they end up being morally worse than they were before they'd gone through that moral transformation. I was just talking with somebody after the service about this. We were commiserating about a friend, someone they grew up with, someone that I've known in ministry that saw this very thing went further than you could even imagine into sin. Because there was just a moral transformation and there was no filling of that void with Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, 7 through 9, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot submit to God's law. And those who are in the flesh cannot Please God cannot please God. But you're not in the flesh, you're in the Spirit. If the Spirit of God really does dwell in you. There are only two groups in humanity. Those who are in the flesh, born in the flesh. And those who are in the Spirit, born again by the Spirit. Those in the flesh do not have the Spirit and cannot submit to God's law or please God. Those in the Spirit are filled by the Spirit, are enabled by the Spirit to fulfill the just requirement of the law. The first are but moralists and they're lost. The second are disciples and they're found. Christ is not an ethics teacher. 
He's a Savior. He didn't come to teach morality. He came to redeem sinners. Make no mistake, friends. There is no one Satan feels more comfortable with and more readily makes his home with than the self-righteous moralist. And moralists are as hell-bound as the atheist. The Christian faith is not a self-improvement project. Spurgeon said this, he said, the first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness, not my merit, but my misery, not my standing, but my folly, not my riches, but my need. He comes to visit his people, yet not to admire their beauties, but to remove their deformities, not to reward their virtues, but to forgive their sins. Remember that account in John 4 when it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. I don't know all the reasons Jesus had to go through Samaria because he clearly didn't have to go through Samaria when you're looking at it on a map. But one of those reasons is pretty clear. He had to go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment in Samaria. Remember that woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well that he meets and she is there drawing water and Jesus is there resting and he asks her to draw water for him. And she's shocked. Here, here's a man asking a woman to, to draw water and she is not a Jew and he's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. They get into this conversation and Jesus says to her, if you had only asked, I would have given you water from which you'll never thirst again. That there would be a wellspring that would be within her that would quench her thirst. They go on in the conversation and Jesus tells her to go and call her husband and she says, I, I don't have a husband. He said, that's right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. What's she been doing? She's been drawing water, but she's been drawing it from, from the life of men. She has this Christ-sized void in her, and she's seeking to satiate it by sex with men. She needs a Christ-sized thing to fill a Christ-sized void, and she's made a man-made thing and seeking to fulfill it. And she's fine that it doesn't satiate. And so she goes from one man to the next man. Jesus says, if you only asked, if you only knew, where you need to draw from is me. You need to be filled with me. You will never thirst again when you drink from me. It can be various things in our lives. It can be retirement accounts. It can be success. It can be sex. It can be drugs. It can be alcohol. It can be our children. It can be our marriages. 
Nothing fills that void. Jesus came not simply to see her moral. He came to see her transform. Notice that he didn't just tell her to go away and get her life together and her act together. He told her what she needed. She needed him. She needed him. And she's transformed. She goes into the village and she's got to tell everybody about this man that she has met. It's fascinating, right? Back in the account with him, she, after he speaks to her about her five husbands and the man she's now with, she says, ah, I perceive that you're a prophet. Pretty understatement of the century. And so when she goes off into the village, she's got to tell everybody. Her life's been changed. It set her free from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, and eventually from the presence of sin. It's not enough just to be morally transformed. You, you have to be set free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin and the presence of sin. And that only happens as He takes up residence in you. And then you're a new creation with a new heart and a new life and you belong to a new family. She wanted everyone to meet this Christ, to know this Christ that she had encountered. She had him on her lips. She couldn't help but tell people about her because she who was orphaned by sin was now part of the very family of God. Jesus underscores this point when his mother and brothers come to him in verse 46 and following and this is our second point, the great blessing that is granted to disciples. It's quite possible that Mary and Jesus' brothers are there to pull him away, that they are embarrassed of him, that they don't uh, want him to continue teaching and preaching as he has been doing, because we see that in other Gospels, like the Gospel of Mark in chapter 3, verse 21, we read that his family, quote, went out to seize him. For they were saying he is out of his mind. That is, his own family didn't believe in him at this point. Later, of course, they will. James will become one of the great leaders in the Christian church after the resurrection and will have quite an, an influence there in the church in Jerusalem. But they come to Jesus at least with an expectation that because of their genetic uh, connection to him, because they were a biological family, that they had some kind of right to stop him from doing kingdom work, that they could halt him in his preaching and his teaching. And Jesus is very clear here. He will not place his genetic family above the kingdom. The kingdom comes first. Of course, Jesus in other passages will make it very clear that he is not somehow denigrating the family. He will speak of honoring your mother and your father. He will speak of the importance of the the covenant, the marriage covenant, and what husband and wife enter into together. But he's also very clear that the kingdom comes before family. The family is there for the services of, of the purposes of serving the kingdom. He's not making a negative statement about his biological family. Rather, what he's doing is making a positive statement about his disciples. Notice what he calls his disciples, and see how 
much Christ treasures his disciples. He says that they are my brothers and sisters and mother. Gracious, affectionate words that he uses for his disciples. Familial words. They, they speak of intimacy. They speak of belonging. They, they speak of the closest possible connection. There is no greater earthly connection that can be, that can be illustrated than that of family. Tied together, you're intimate, you're, you're bonded together. And those who are Christ, he says, he considers his very family members. This is the language throughout the New Testament, that we are brothers and sisters. And then he will go even so far as to call us his bride. And all of this is, is underneath the, the great overarching truth that God is the father of these disciples. That we're his children. Is there a greater honor than being counted as someone's family? And Jesus says in verse 50, whoever, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever, the door is wide open and you are part of his family. I grew up uh, without a dad in the home. My uh, Mom and dad were divorced when I was two, so I grew up, uh, you know, maybe if it was a good year, seeing my dad three or four days a year uh, on a good year. And so I had two heroes in my life, male heroes. It was my grandfather, and then it was a Boy Scout leader, Mr. Nagel. And uh, there was a summer camp where, with the Boy Scout troop, a week-long camp, and I was the patrol leader of my patrol, and as a 12-year-old boy, when you're in a patrol with all the rest of your friends and you're in charge of them, that is not a fun place to be. Uh, they want to goof around, and you're supposed to get them in line and get them to do things they're supposed to do. But I was the patrol leader, and uh, it was the night that we always look forward to at summer camp. It was the night that we would go out as an entire troop and we would go on a canoe trip together which always turned into a big splash war and you came back to camp drenched and a lot of laughing and a lot of fun. And it was that day and that night we had eaten dinner together as a patrol and so it was time to go out on the canoe trip but cleanup hadn't been done from dinner. Remember Mr. Nagel stopping by our patrol's campsite and looking at the mess, and he said, Jason, you're the patrol leader. Yes, Mr. Nagel. Uh, why is this not cleaned up? So I went over to the duty roster, and I said, well, it was these two men, these two boys that were supposed to do it. I said, yes, Jason. Uh, but someone needs to stay back and clean this up and can't go on the canoe trip tonight. Now, who do you think that should be? Now, I was a good moralist at that point, and I knew that as a patrol leader, it fell on my shoulders because I hadn't made sure that those boys had done the job that they were to do. And so I stayed that night in the camp by myself, cleaning up all of dinner while 50-plus kids in the troop went out and had a, a canoe fest together. The next day, Mr. Nagel came to me and he said, Jason, 
He said, tonight, how about you and I go out on a canoe trip together, just the two of us? I could have walked across that lake. I didn't need a canoe. It was just going to be Mr. Nagel and I in that canoe and nobody else. But if I could have walked across the lake in that moment, I could have walked across the clouds as we rowed back into shore. Because he asked me in the canoe, he said, Jason, he said, how many sons do I have? Well, I knew that answer. I knew them both. I said, Mr. Nagel, you have two sons. He said, no, Jason, I have at least one more. I consider you my son. I could have walked across the sky. I have no father to speak of. Mr. Nagel considers me his son. And his son. The father looks upon you and says, you are my son. Christ looks at you and says, you are my brother and my sister. You belong to me. The Jews would have never called God their father. I want you to realize how significant this is. Notice that, that Jesus speaks of his father as my father. The, the gospels are consistent in presenting the relationship between Jesus and this one he calls father as unique and important. That Jesus is very aware of this unique relationship. You remember in Luke 2 when he is wandered away from his parents, and his parents are searching for him. And they go to the temple, and he says, Did you not know that I would be in my father's house? The father himself confirms it in John 3, or Matthew 3, when Jesus goes under the waters of baptism, and he comes out. And what does the voice from heaven say? It says, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus tells us in John 5 that what he does is simply the will of the Father. His words are the Father's words. His works are the Father's works. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 15, he tells us, all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. He acknowledges, though, that the Father is greater than him. In John 14, he says, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, but the Father is greater than me. But that greatness cannot be ontological. That is, that they can't be different in being. They must be the same in substance and glory because in John 17, Jesus is very clear when he's praying the high priestly prayer. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In fact, he will say that he and the Father are indeed one in John 10.30. I and the Father are one. In John 14.9, when Philip comes to him and says, show us the Father, Jesus says to him, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does this work. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. What theologians call the perichoresis, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit all mutually indwell one another. There's an intimate relationship here. There's the Son, and there's the Father. There is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's union. There is shared knowledge. There is shared action. There is mutual indwelling. And yet they are unique. The Father is the Father. The Son is the Son. And yet the Father and the Son are one God, one being for all of eternity. As Athanasius pointed out in the 4th century, there are only two ways of being. There is eternal, necessary, divine, fixed being, and there is not. Not eternal, not necessary, not divine, not fixed. And any variance from the eternal, necessary, divine, and fixed pales in significance. That is, the archangel and the worm may appear to be in vastly superior, different categories. The archangel far more superior to the worm. But in the light of divine existence, they are almost indistinguishable. The Son and the Father, along with the Spirit, are on the side of the eternal and necessary and divine and fixed that is the demarcating line, and everything else is on the other side of that line. Everything. This makes that relationship between the persons of the triune Godhead unique. It is unchangeable. It is it's incomprehensible. The Son is the Son of the Father. And yet, some mysterious way. This should just blow every circuit in your head. The Father decrees and the Son comes into the world and He dies for sinners and the Spirit comes into a person and fills that void. And we are united to the triune God. So closely related to him, that he uses familial terms to speak of us. He brings us into that. We're made sons. The son has never made a son. He's always been the son. But you and I are made sons. Now, I know that's not politically correct. Say that you're made sons. But I don't want to move from that. You're made sons. Because it speaks of position. And it speaks in the New Testament world of inheritance. If you are a disciple of Christ, you are made a son. You're a co-heir with Christ. 
and dwelt by the very Spirit of Christ. It's no small thing when Christ gives you and I that language in the Lord's Prayer, our Father. We can say that with Him. Our Father who art in heaven. It's no small thing when Paul says in Galatians 4 that for this reason God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's why He came. And Paul says, because you are sons, God sent His Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God, united with the eternal. So intimately tied to God, so closely in union with Him, that He uses familial terms to reference you and I. I'll give you some quick takeaways. These are quick, so don't get nervous. Seven quick takeaways. At the end, I know you said a two-point sermon, wow, and then he's got seven takeaways, seven takeaways. First, make sure the void in your life has been filled with Christ. You can try to fill it with other things, but it's a fool's errand. You're going to find whatever it is that you seek to satiate that Christ-sized void is going to continue to remain a void. And you're going to be running after thing, after thing, after thing. You'll never be satiated until you've drank the living water. Second, do not think you're excluded. He said, whoever does the will of my Father, this is an open invitation to all, none are excluded who believe. But we can equally say that all are excluded who do not believe. Third, you must understand that this is a gift from Him and it's not a result of our efforts. Don't get confused by verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Some think that God is our Father, that we are members of the family of God because we chose God and gave ourselves to Him. And listen, there's a very real sense you and I chose God. But we chose Him because He chose us. We chose Him because His grace was present first. His sovereign grace first came into our lives. His sovereign grace took our cold hearts. His sovereign grace took our dead souls. His sovereign grace took our dead minds. And He gave us life. J. Vernon McGee, a famous Bible teacher from a different century. I remember hearing of him say one time, he said, just stop it. Just stop that. that. That phrase that people always use. Stop saying you need to give your heart to Christ. He said, where do you ever find that in the Bible? Think about it. Where do you find that in the Bible? Give your heart to Christ. That's not what the Bible says. You don't give your heart to Christ. Christ comes to you and gives you a new heart. 
Christ comes into your life, he, he's not looking just to, just to cleanse the house a little bit. He's not looking for you to put things in order and then come to him. He comes to your house and he tears it down. And then he builds it back up. He gives you a new heart. He gives you a new life. You're a new creation in him. And then we walk in him. Then we obey him. Our turning to Him and walking in Him is not the cause, but the effect. And the effect is evidence of His working. If we've chosen Him, it's only because He first chose us. If we look to Him as Father and consider Him our Father, it's because He's first looked upon us as His children. If we have love for Him in our hearts, it's only because He first loved us. His grace is the cause. Our response is the consequence. We love Him because He first loved us. Fourth, when we come to Him, we do the will of the Father. That's what Jesus says here. We do the will of the Father if we're His brothers and sisters and mothers. That is, we seek to be moral. Moralists are not disciples of Christ, but disciples of Christ are moral. The very foundation of doing the will of God is believing in a son. That's where it begins. John 6, 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You cannot do the work of God or accomplish the will of God apart from believing in the son of God. There's no partial reformation allowed in the kingdom of God. But once you are a child of God, once you're a member of the household of God, then you desire to do the will of God. Your life becomes moral. This family has a family ethic. And the family ethic is be holy as I am holy. And this is the heartbeat of the Christian. I want to be more like my heavenly father. I want to be more like my savior. I want to be holy as he is holy. So we seek to do the will of our heavenly father. We put off sin and we put on righteousness. We're not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of our minds. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Kingdom disciples are moralists. They aren't just mere moralists. Fifth, dear disciple, know that Christ is yours and you're his. He couldn't make it more clear here, could he? You may be without a family, you may not have a spouse, you may not have a father or mother, at least not a good one. You may not even have a friend. And Christ says to his disciples, you're not alone. I have you and you have me. Members of the family of God. And that's not something that disappears. Sixth, know that this is an everlasting and eternal bond. In Psalm 48, 14, the psalmist says this. He says, this is God, our God, forever and ever. He's our God. 
and he's our God forever and ever. This is the great covenantal promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. And that can't be undone. He's ours. There's nothing in your life that you can say that about. Nothing is yours like God is yours. Your finances are not yours. Your children are not yours. Your spouse is not yours. Your body is not yours. Everything you have has been given to you for stewardship. God is yours. By covenant, he's bonded himself to you. And he says, I'm yours. I'm your God. Even as you belong to me, I belong to you. He's our father forever. Adoption into God's family, it's not a goal that's set before us. Children are not adopted because they imitate their parents accurately. Rather, like justification, adoption is legal and relational. Our legal status is changed. Our relational status is changed. It is declared. It is established. Our relation to Him is unalterable. As the psalmist says in that same psalm, 48, verse 14, he says, This is God, our God, forever and ever. He never ceases to be a father to his children. Christ never ceases to be an elder brother to his disciples. The Spirit never ceases to indwell those that are his. Forever. It's a permanent family. There can't be loss here. Finally, recognize how treasured you are by Christ. Ah, oh, don't miss this. You are more treasured than anything else in creation. Trees, grass, fields, even the stars that are in the sky. You are more treasured than even the angels and the archangels that have been before his throne for ages and ages and ages. Because you're part of his family. Others may disregard you. You may feel weak. You may feel like your faith is small. You may think your righteousness may be lacking. You're a treasured member of the family of Christ. You are God's. And you are God's forever. You are treasured. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. You're His. And He's yours. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how easily those words come off our lips, how easy it is to say the very phrase that we have been taught, 
what depth of riches are contained in those words. We can approach you as our Father. And that's not a figment of our imagination. It's not some creation of our own. It's not some fictional story. But it is a great truth. It has been fixed for all of eternity by the blood that was shed by our Savior upon that cross. And how we rejoice that we can call you Father. May we be those that walk in your truth, who live as children of yours, doing your will. As those who have been filled with Christ, to the glory of our Father in heaven. In his name we pray. Amen.